0: Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Welcome to the Spy Talk podcast. I'm Gene Meserve. And
1: I'm Jeff Stein. There's lots going on in the intelligence world, as there has been since the 911 terror attacks on New York and the Pentagon 20 years ago this September. There have been new attacks in Afghanistan. And U.S. national security officials still seem to be struggling over how to deal with Iran, North Korea, and, of course, China and Russia.
0: And there are other subjects they're struggling with, too. I happen to be in Copenhagen, where I have been moderating at the Copenhagen Democracy Summit. We heard from freedom activists from Myanmar, Hong Kong, Venezuela, Belarus, and a big topic of conversation was social media and how when it's wielded by our geopolitical enemies, it can really undermine democracy all around the world. So I'll be talking to the former secretary general of NATO about that threat. I also had a conversation this week with a longtime CIA analyst, Matthew Burroughs, about the intelligence community's annual threat assessment and global trends report, and whether government really
2: pays attention to them. You know, we're not talking about people not working. In fact, the problem is they're working too much on day-to-day that they cannot see, you know, they can't see the forest for the trees.
1: Meanwhile, in Afghanistan, thousands of interpreters and other Afghans who worked with U.S. and NATO forces are at risk of being murdered by the Taliban as the U.S. pulls out. David Petraeus, the former Army general and CIA director, went on CNN recently to say we have a moral obligation to get these folks out and quickly. Uh, But the special immigrant visa process has really been stalled for quite some time, and it's going to take a good bit of effort to get it going. And I fear that now the numbers are as high as 17,000, Jake. I fear that we will have withdrawn and will have drawn down our embassy and that the ability to actually process them uh, will will erode even farther. Let's keep in mind that we have been able to put a satellite on Mars faster than you can get through the SIV process. These are individuals for whom I feel we have a moral obligation. Uh, They served with our soldiers uh, on the ground, shared risk and hardship with them. That's David Petraeus urging the Biden administration to evacuate Afghans and Iraqis who've worked with us. In the long wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, U.S. and NATO troops, especially their intelligence teams, have come to rely on English-speaking interpreters for the success of their missions, even their lives. One of them was Janus Shinwari, an Afghan who is credited with saving the lives of five U.S. soldiers. Shinwari was lucky to get out alive after he became the target of Taliban death threats. Now he started No One Left Behind, an organization to help other desperate interpreters get out before U.S. troops leave in September. The process had been snarled and red tape for years. Giannis Shinwari, welcome to the Spy Talk podcast. You've got some big names behind your organization, No One Left Behind. People like General David Petraeus, the former CIA director, former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, former Ambassador Ryan Crocker, General Pete Chiarelli, and many more, and last last but not least, Matt Zeller, the former Army Intelligence and CIA officer who credits you with saving his life. And it said that you saved the lives of five US soldiers in Afghanistan. And I think that makes you as as much an American hero as, as anybody. Now, it would seem that the title Interpreter Translator would be self-explanatory, but for people who are not familiar with the combat operations, tell us what an Interpreter Translator does, especially for intelligence units, and what a typical day was like for you.
3: All right. First of all, I would like to thank you guys for having me. Um, An Interpreter is uh, doing a very important job and a very risky job. Uh, I would explain it in a short way. An interpreter is the eyes and ears of American soldiers in the front line. In other way, if I explain it, uh an interpreter is a bridge between the U.S. government and Afghan government. A bridge. Uh, a bridge, yeah, which is very important. Uh, usually an interpreter is going to the fight it's not, we are not only interpreters we are uh, as culture advisors for the US military in the war we are there as i said before eyes and ears and we make something impossible to possible why i say this because without interpreter nobody understands the language in my country if, if there's no interpreter, that's impossible. The mission is impossible.
1: I would, I would get, guess that a number of younger soldiers that you worked with probably had no idea where Afghanistan was before they arrived there and zero knowledge of the culture, the languages, and so on. So you were really explaining the new world to them.
3: Yes, yes, that, that, that's true. We were explaining the the new world. We were explaining the the culture of our people. We were explaining like what to do, what our people like, what our people dislike, and that's all we we did to to like fight shoulder and shoulder alongside with the U.S. military in the in the front line,
1: and which is a very
3: tough job.
1: And would you say you were successful at that? You and other interpreter translators were you? successful at translating Afghan culture to Americans and Americans to Afghans
3: Of course yeah because this was uh, at first we had some some uh, trouble but uh, like a problem but uh, after a while we were um, very good in our job and uh, like explaining the right way we should. Because there are a lot of words that you should not translate in right. to other language. And, and we need to know, like, what should we do and what should we not? Yeah. And that's a very important job to do.
1: Right. You can pronounce a word the wrong way. And it's, it's the entirely opposite of what you meant to say.
3: Yeah, that's true.
1: Now, let's get to the nitty gritty here. And there's a kind of a dark lining to all this. And that's why we're talking today. Working for the Americans put you on the Taliban's death list, the kill list. And in fact, you have told a harrowing story of your uh, desperate plight in getting out of Afghanistan because you were not only on a kill list, you were being stalked by the Taliban. And you have said that you went through two polygraphs. Uh, and your application was accepted and rejected. And I get the impression from reading stories about you and others that this is not atypical, that there are just numerous barriers uh, erected to stop uh, Afghan interpreters from getting to America, even there, even though they're under a death threat. That,
3: that's true. Uh, first of all... Um... I would say it's a very long process for somebody like me. It's, it's very hard to wait for, for a couple of years to receive your, your visa. And yeah, of course, um, there are a lot of things that a lot of mistakes that the U.S. government make, uh, and that, that ends for, for a person like me to lose their visa. As you mentioned before, I was polygraphed twice, and if I and failed, this, and this
1: is after you had worked for a long time
3: with long American time. soldiers, yeah, after eight years, and the the polygraph me before uh, I was coming here, and uh, think or imagine if I failed one of those polygraph tests. I would lose my visa, not only my visa, but I could lose my life. Right.
1: And your family also.
3: And my family also. And there are thousands and thousands that, that are in the same situation. They lost their job because of this polygraph test. And they lost their visa. They lost their application. The application was denied because uh, they, were, they failed this polygraph test which is not fair. This is very right. unfair. And,
1: right. this polygraphs are, this, uh, and polygraphs are not allowed in, in U.S. courtrooms and they are notoriously unreliable uh, with uh, polygraph operators quizzing foreigners uh, uh, and foreigners especially who have no, no experience in the West.
3: Yeah, I know. And I would say honestly, this is this is one way that those uh, whoever does the polygraph to get rid of good people. I received a call uh, a couple of days ago uh, from uh, an individual who has been working for the U.S. military, and he told me, he said, uh, "People are when people are calling for the." Uh, polygraph test before the test they quit their job even though they worked for for six seven years Mm -hmm. but when they receive an email from the polygraph office that they have a polygraph scheduled in the next month they quit their job right away because they don't want to lose their visa yeah it
1: happened to you
3: it you quit your job,
1: me. you sold your home, you gathered all your belongings, you gathered your wife and children in a safe location because you thought your exit from Vietnam, uh, excuse me, exit from Afghanistan was yeah. a done deal. And then your application was overturned and you were stranded.
3: Yes, that's what I'm saying, after eight years of my service, which I was credited for saving five American soldiers in the war, I received an American visa to come to United States. I had the visa for two weeks with me. And within this two weeks, I, as, I, as you say before, I quit my job and where I was safe. The job is not only a job for us, it's actually Uh, where we are safe if we stay inside the military base yeah it's not only a job it's a protection for all whoever works for the US military or for other um, contractors right when I quit my job I came to my family I came to to say goodbye to my relatives and other families and two weeks later I received a call from the embassy in Afghanistan that my visas were revoked and I couldn't fly. And I asked the reason why they said, no, we cannot tell you the the reason why, but you should bring your visas back. And I was in the middle of nowhere. I was almost about to get killed with my family. And I was changing my location every day and every night because I was out of the base. I didn't have any protection and, and, um, I, I lost my visa and I, I lost my hope.
1: There are thousands more like you uh, who have the endorsements of the soldiers who they worked with in in most cases, I would assume. And, uh, and yet uh, they don't get uh, at the head of the line. They're stranded in Afghanistan like you were at one point. How many have died as a result of being in this no-man's land?
3: couple hundred. As far as I know, a couple hundred of them are died. And like I knew 10, 20 of them that they worked with me or they were in the same mission with me or they were my Facebook friends. They, rec- they, they send me messages in Facebook that, hey, Janice, please help us, please raise your voice to the American people, to the American government, because our, our life is at the risk. And next week, I heard that he was killed.
1: How many more are in this limbo and waiting, have put in applications, have received endorsements, and are waiting to get out?
3: Uh, as far as I know, it's between seventeen to 20,000 people are waiting for, for the SIV to get approved.
1: Seventeen and to 20,000 are waiting to get these special immigrant
3: visas. That's true. Seventeen to 20,000 people are waiting. And as far as I know, uh, there, there are no interviews at the embassy. They're not issuing any visa. And we have a couple of months to get them all here.
1: Right. I wrote about this problem 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, when I was at the Washington Post. And... The situation seems to have changed little over the past decade, Uh, whereas before it was a serious annoyance and cost the lives of people here and there. Now there's great urgency in Afghanistan because President Biden has declared we're going to be out on September 11th. I don't know how you get 17,000 people out uh, between now and then, or even if the United States is particularly interested in doing that but one uh one possible solution uh has come up that you are endorsing which is called the guam option and that refers to when we airlifted thousands of vietnamese to guam uh, back in 1975 we've we've uh, done similar evacuations with uh, Kurds from Kurdistan in 1996-97 when Saddam Hussein was threatening their lives. We evacuated thousands from Albania, Kosovo, in 1991. Uh, So we've done this before. Uh, Are you getting any reception for that idea, massive airlifts out of Bagram for uh, these uh, people?
3: That's one way we already thought about it and we talked about it. And again, uh, even if we evacuate 10 like hundred people per day since starting from tomorrow, still we are not able to bring all of them here. Mm. And we are we are getting out of time. Time is running fast. Yeah. And the US government should uh quickly make a decision to bring everybody here because uh uh if I tell you something these interpreters, they if one of them gets killed, they are the breadwinner for a big family. If one person dies, for example, if one interpreter or any contractor who works for the U.S. government dies, you think that 10 people died with him because he is the only supporter of the family. And They did their part. They did whatever they could to make this mission happen. They stood shoulder to shoulder with the U.S. military in Afghanistan and Iraq. And now this is our job. This is our mission to bring them to safety. We don't have to abandon and destroy their life and just leave them and say, no, we are good. Thank you so much for your service. Now we are good. We shouldn't do that.
1: Well, I suppose the attitude of US officials all along has been, well, we can't start evacuating interpreters. Uh, uh, it might create a panic. Um, and, and, or they might say, we can't, why should we single out interpreters for evacuation when thousands of other Afghans have worked for US forces, not as interpreters, but their lives are in danger too.
3: That's different. Uh, if you work for the Afghan National Army or Afghan police or, or, or other security forces in Afghanistan, that's a different thing. If you are working directly to the US government and you are getting paid from the US government and you are supporting their mission, that's a totally different thing. And, and you know what the Taliban call those people? They call them American spies. They call them traitor of Islams. Mm-hmm. And 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 whatever happens in Afghanistan, they blame the, the interpreters.
1: Yeah. And so your argument is that because you and, and thousands of others have been paid directly by the US government. They're not part of the Afghan government, which is supported by USAID, but directly paid and supervised by US forces. That you that we really owe you an exit visa.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's true. We we were working directly for the U.S. government, and now if the U.S. withdraws, that, that's there's no question that that the we will be like alive. They will kill us. The first night, the first day, the first week, they will find these people and they will kill them in front of their family, and maybe post their videos on the social media for other countries as a warning message to stop supporting U.S.
1: This is a really grim scenario, I'm, I'm sad to say. Um, what will, ha- because of the timeline so quickly, uh, the evacuation date so quickly approaching, it seems now impractical to even think that we're going to get a fraction of interpreters out of Afghanistan, would you agree with that? Yeah. And yeah. So, and- so then what happens? They go. Is there is there a place to run to or a place to hide?
3: No, no place to hide. Uh, before, in 1996, when the Taliban attacked Afghanistan, we could go to Pakistan and, and Iran, which we did. When the Taliban attacked, there was no border. There was nothing between Pakistan and Afghanistan. Millions of people emigrated to Pakistan. And millions of people they they just run to, to Pakistan like illegally, like us, because we didn't have any any choice. And we didn't want to we we didn't want to kill by the Taliban. And the only option we had to flee to Pakistan and we did. Now, there's no more Pakistan and Iran. You cannot go to Pakistan and Iran. There's a big border, there's there a fence. You cannot cr- cross it. Even if, if the police see you close to the border, they will shoot you. It's very difficult now to go to the Pakistan and they wouldn't let millions of people to come again to the Pakistan.
1: What about fleeing north?
3: Like where north?
1: Well, to Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, places like that.
3: No, you need a visa to go there and getting a visa is very hard. If you apply for visa, it takes months, like five, six months up to a year to get a visa. And these people, they, they, they cannot wait that long to get the visa and go there. And after, okay, see if, if, even if they go to Uzbekistan, after two, three months, they will kick them back. They will send them back to Afghanistan. Then what happens? Okay.
1: A number of uh, veterans organizations teamed up on Monday to write a letter to President Biden urgently requesting attention to this matter. Have you heard anything about the response from the Biden administration?
3: Uh, As far as I know, nothing. Nothing came up back from the Biden's administration.
1: Well, this is so grim. I hate to leave it on that note, uh, Janice, but um, we'll check back with you as time goes on. Uh, Our fingers are crossed. I know your prayers are with your brethren in Afghanistan, hoping that somehow they can escape the what looks like a really bad situation, even doom for them in September.
3: you know like every day I'm receiving hundreds of messages, Facebook messages from interpreters, and they're begging for their life. they say the only hope they have is no one left behind, support them and raise their voice and make American people to hear their voice, to come here. And um, as you mentioned before, intelligence job, I worked my entire life working with the US intelligence. It's one of the toughest job. You have to gather information talking to the people, to the villagers, and um, especially when you detain a Taliban, a person like me is going with an American intelligence officer to interview him, to ask him questions. And myself did it with more than hundreds of Taliban. When we were detaining Taliban, me including my US supervisor, the intelligence officer, we were, we were going to investigate this Taliban. We were going to interview this Taliban and a US officer leaves. And if this Taliban gets released back from the jail, he cannot find that US officer, but he recognized my face, he will find me and Why I'm saying this, because thousands and thousands of interpreters like me, who did the same thing, are still hoping to receive a visa and come here with their family to be saved.
1: Thank you for coming on and discussing such a difficult, difficult situation. I'm talking with Janice Shinwari, who is the founder of No One Left Behind. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.
0: Anders Fogh Rasmussen is a former Danish prime minister and a former secretary general of NATO. And he is trying to galvanize the world's democracies under the banner of his Alliance of Democracies Foundation to fight what he sees as a cudgel being wielded by authoritarian governments. Is disinformation a form of psychological warfare?
4: Yes, uh, no doubt disinformation is uh, psychological warfare. While cyber attacks is a physical attack on our IT uh, infrastructure, Uh, disinformation is uh, aiming at attacking human beings uh, with the purpose to impact their thinking, their voting, their attitudes in general. Um, and uh, that way, uh, the perpetrators will try to undermine the confidence uh, in our elected uh, government and democratic institutions. And uh, seen from a security perspective and NATO perspective, uh, the purpose is to create divisions within and between allied member states.
0: How grave a threat do you think it is?
4: I think it's a very, very uh, serious uh, threat um, that we should take just as seriously as uh, cyber attacks and cyber defense. So we need to create much stronger defense against uh, disinformation.
0: Where are these attacks coming from?
4: Primarily from Russia. Uh, but uh, other autocratic nations in the world uh, have copied the playbook. Uh, China, for instance, is more and more active. We have also seen indications that Venezuela and Iran uh, are uh, trying to copy uh, the Russian uh, playbook.
0: And they aren't just attacking the United States either, are they? No, no,
4: it's, uh, it's all over the world. Uh, I think it's an attack against uh, free democratic societies and our institutions. And uh, this is the reason why uh, Joe Biden and I co-founded uh, the Transatlantic Commission on Election Integrity in 2018, because this is not only an American challenge. We are facing exactly the same challenges in Europe.
0: So, uh, full disclosure here I am a member of the Transatlantic Commission on Election Integrity and i am certainly well aware uh, of the work that you're doing. Uh, but before we get to the protective measures, I'm uh, a clear phenomenon is that these are no longer just external uh, attacks on systems. You have domestic actors and even sitting politicians who are now using disinformation as a tool. Isn't that right?
4: That's right. Um, And in certain cases, it's uh, very, very difficult uh, to identify uh, who is actually spreading uh, disinformation. Very often uh, disinformation uh, originates uh, from abroad, but you have a lot of examples uh, that domestic actors uh, spread disinformation as well. And as you point out, <laughs> a sitting politicians, political leaders are using this playbook as well.
0: So how hard is it to defend then when you have people both within and without utilizing this tool?
4: It's extremely complicated uh, to create uh, efficient defense, also because we are uh, touching upon the a very, very delicate borderline between free speech and the protection uh, of individuals in our democratic societies.
0: So what is TCI TCEI trying to do uh, to deal with the problem?
4: Yeah, uh, the Transatlantic Commission on Election Integrity um, tries to monitor and detect uh, disinformation and foreign meddling in our election campaigns and our democratic processes in general, but not only to monitor and detect, but also to develop tools uh, to, to help us uh, create a more effective defense against disinformation.
0: What kinds of tools are we talking
4: about? When it comes to detection of uh, disinformation, uh, we have uh, developed uh, tools uh, to identify uh, what we call um, uh, hyper-tweeting, for instance. Uh, if If certain tweets are... Uh, disseminated um, more than 50 times per hour. It's an indication that something is wrong. It may be the so-called trolls or a bot uh, that automatically amplifies uh, fake news, for instance. Uh, Of course, it's a mechanical uh, detection, but still, it's an indicator that something is wrong. And actually, we have used it uh, in uh, several election uh, campaigns. I can, for instance, as an example, I can mention North Macedonia that had a, a referendum campaign uh, on on a specific name issue. And uh, Russia uh, was interested in preventing uh, North Macedonia in solving that name issue because that would pave the way for future membership of NATO, et cetera, et cetera. We detected uh, that 10 to 15% uh, of the tweets and other uploads on social media uh, were fake.
0: You've mentioned NATO uh, and you're a former secretary general. What is NATO doing about the problem?
4: <clears throat> NATO is um, uh, finally, I would say, uh, starting to step up efforts to defend uh, against uh, this new threat. Usually, NATO uh, c- uh, created defenses against tanks, but today we have to uh, realize that uh, the threats are more sophisticated, hybrid threats including disinformation. And um, uh, NATO leaders have, uh, at the last two summits, uh, they have tasked uh, the staff uh, in the Brussels headquarters to develop such uh, defenses. Of course, we cannot reveal (laughs) in details uh, which defenses are created because that would... <laughs> be Make them effective. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> it would be give to, to Putin and, and, and others. But I have no doubt uh, that um, uh, the NATO efforts uh, will um, uh, bear uh, fruits. But it is about counter information, facts based counter information, timely counter information be transparent, and coordinated among uh, allies. I think that's an effective tool against disinformation.
0: What part do the social media platforms have to play to get a handle on this?
4: Well, of course, the social media platforms uh, do have uh, a responsibility. Uh, I think it is a responsibility for the social media platforms to uh, take down Inauthentic profiles and uh, to stop uh, bots from amplifying fake news, etc. etc. So the social media platforms do have a responsibility. But having said that, I clearly belong to the camp that is also cautious when it comes to any restrictions on, on free speech, uh, very often it's, it's, it's hard to say, uh, is this fake news or just a political opinion? And we cannot leave it uh, to uh, private uh, platform, boards of pri- private platforms to, to, to decide who can freely express their views And who cannot? So in that respect, while I understand uh, that uh, Twitter and uh, Facebook uh, made restrictions on um, uploads uh, from the former president uh, Trump, I think they have started down a slippery slope. It's very difficult uh, to define what is fake news
0: what about regulation is that the way to go should governments be playing a larger part in trying to get a handle on this
4: yeah uh, if 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 I have to choose between private boardroom decisions uh, and legislative decisions then I prefer to have very clear uh, legislation because free speech is for my part free speech is the most valuable, the most precious civic liberty we have. Without free speech, all other freedoms will wither. Uh, So that's why we have to guard uh, free speech.
0: A lot of people talk about educational solutions. If we just make consumers smarter about what they're seeing online, they can make judgments. Does that hold water?
4: It does. To a certain degree, it does. Um, <clears throat> and, and that's actually one of the key measures uh, that we have uh, developed uh, in the Transatlantic Commission on Election Integrity to, to raise uh, awareness. I think a, a population that in general is very much aware of the risk of uh, disinformation uh, is also much more resilient. So to raise awareness is in itself a very, very important uh, counter um, countermeasure. But in general, you have to improve uh, social media literacy, uh, so to speak. Uh, as an example, uh, in the Transatlantic Commission on Election Integrity, we have developed... Um, uh, Uh, a game, (laughs) an online game, uh, called Disinformation Diaries, uh, where uh, a politician is subject to disinformation, and then um, uh, during this game, you learn much more about disinformation and how to handle it. So it's an example of uh, a, a tool we can use.
0: But what do you do about a situation like the one we currently have in the United States where people are taking genuine information and labeling it as fake and not believing it?
4: Yeah, that's of course a a, a huge problem. Um, One element that could be used uh, to defend against uh, that Um, is um, to um, uh, use the approach uh, uh, that an institution or a company called NewsGuard is uh, using. NewsGuard, we are partnering with uh, NewsGuard. NewsGuard is um, a company that monitors all major media. Uh, not only in the US, but gradually also uh, in uh, Europe. And uh, journalists uh, are then, um, a group of journalists, are then uh, in a bipartisan manner, uh, labeling uh, each and every media. They go through a certain criteria, and if media fulfills those criteria, they get uh, a green. Uh, If not, they get a red. Uh, And I think, of course, it's not perfect, but it is a tool that can be used to distinguish between uh, not serious media and media that take their responsibility to provide uh, correct news. Um, So um, that's, that's at least one possible method.
0: Although again, in the United States, you have people in such divergent camps, things are so polarized and people on one side were only watching one channel and people on the other watching another. (laughs) And frankly, I don't think they'd pay attention to whether their news organization had a green check or not.
4: You may be right. Uh, I am very much concerned about uh, the split uh, in the American uh, population. Um, and people tend uh, to seek information from news channels that they agree with uh, beforehand. Uh, and uh, it may uh, show uh, divisions um, in, in, in society. So you're quite right. Uh, that, that is really uh, have channels. Um,
0: so are we handing a victory to um, those who seek to divide us, those who seek to undermine us? I don't <laughs> mean you because you're no. fighting it, but the <laughs> public at large who is yeah. so willing to believe some of this disinformation. <laughs>
4: Yeah, you can take uh, the debate on vaccinations uh, in the U.S. As, as a scary example of that. Uh, just today I learned that um, now the curve is going down in uh, the U.S. Uh, because uh, vaccination has been politicized. There, there are people that refuse <laughs> to be vaccinated. Uh, and it sends a political signal. At, it's very unfortunate. And I think that's exactly the purpose of Putin, Xi Jinping, and all other autocrats in the world, uh, to weaken our democracies uh, uh, through that kind of um, disinformation and undermining uh, of uh, confidence in our democratic uh, societies. So in that respect, you're right. Uh, we are handing over victory to the autocrats, but we have to fight back. And again, I would say, facts-based information, timed information, be transparent, uh, coordination across uh, borders, etc. I think, still, I do believe that, I do do believe in the best in people. So, uh, if we can, provide fact-based uh, knowledge. I think that's the best uh, and most efficient means to counter fake news.
0: And if we can't counter it, where are we left? What happens?
4: We will lose. <laughs> yeah, but it is as easy as that. Um, then freedom is at stake. Uh, because only the autocrats can profit uh, from fake news. um, And that's exactly their purpose. Uh, So we we really have to fight back. Now, the Transatlantic Commission is also engaged uh, in the German election campaign, for instance. And uh, like in other election campaigns across the globe, Uh, we will ask uh, the candidates uh, for the German parliament to sign an election pledge, uh, a pledge for election integrity. And by signing that pledge, people also sign up to certain principles. For instance, you pledge not to disseminate fake news, you pledge to be transparent about your campaign financing, Um, just to mention a couple of uh, elements and you also pledge uh, to educate your staff uh, in cybersecurity, et cetera, et cetera. So again, it's a tool uh, to try to protect our democratic processes against foreign meddling and disinformation.
0: You're a student of US politics and let me bring it back there one more time. Do you think if you were to introduce this pledge uh, now in the United States, that you'd actually get a majority of politicians to sign up?
4: (laughs) And no, but I can tell you uh, that in the last uh, presidential campaign, Joe Biden signed up uh, to this election pledge Well, that's because he
0: he, helped write it.
4: (laughs) He helped write it, yes. Uh, Trump didn't. Um, And I know that in the US, it's also controversial because of one of the elements in this election pledge, and that is transparency about uh, campaign financing. Um and uh, I think more transparency in American campaign financing would be preferable. But I mean, so my my answer to your question is no, I don't think a majority would would do that. but still I I do believe that if two candidates are asked to do you agree on these, Elements in this election pledge, and the ones no, I don't. Then it's a bit suspicious. Um, so while it's not a legal obligation, then <laughs> do, we cannot, uh, we 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 can't enforce it legally. But still, politically, morally, I think it has an effect. And for instance, in the European parliamentary elections all candidates uh, for uh, so-called and candidate, and I the leading candidates for becoming commission president, they signed up to this uh, election pledge. So I think it it does have uh, an effect.
0: Obviously social media is how this disinformation is spread. And I wonder if you've come to a conclusion on whether in the end social media was a blessing or whether social media is a curse?
4: Social media is definitely a big blessing because social media has uh, democratized uh, the public discourse. Um, In the past, you had very few media. You had always journalists uh, as a a filter. Uh, Today, people can express themselves directly for good and bad, I admit, <laughs> also bad, but uh, they can express themselves without anyone to 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 exercise censorship. I think we have got a much more pluralistic and much more democratic society that way. So the bottom line is a blessing.
0: Matthew Burrows is director of the Foresight Strategy and Risks Initiative at the Atlantic Council. Before that, he spent almost 25 years as an analyst at the CIA where he worked on their global trends reports. These are written by the intelligence community and their goal is to give policymakers an idea of what long-term threats the United States could be facing. Well, 13 years ago, Matthew Burroughs predicted a global pandemic, but were we ready? As someone who did forecast this, I'm curious what your reaction is to where we find ourselves now. Are you frustrated? Are you angry?
2: Angry. I mean, in the sense that this is, this is a life and death issue. It, it boggles the mind that a country that is supposed to be the global leader should have found itself far so far behind in really uh, dealing with this issue.
0: The COVID pandemic plays a major part in this year's reports, and and I know that you've been doing some thinking and writing on how you think it's going to play out. What are the possible scenarios that you see?
2: Well, I think at this point there's a there's a big scenario of inequality. Um, I think. Th- the problem will be in the developing world. And there we, we could be living with this for a very long time because this is undoing the middle classes in, in many countries in Latin America, uh, India, elsewhere, who have just risen out of poverty. And And what are
0: the consequences of that if they slide backwards?
2: Well, political instability. I mean, if you look at 2008 with the financial crisis, you can connect it in some ways to the Arab Spring. Um, You know, but they take, the unfortunate thing is a lot of people, when some Latin America country collapses, uh, are not going to connect it necessarily to the fact that we did not push ahead in getting vaccines out to the rest of the world um, that we weren't looking after their interests as much as our interests.
0: The, this year's threat assessment labels China a near peer competitor. Uh, the Global Trends Report actually discusses a possible future military conflict. But in your view, has the intelligence community been a bit slow to recognize the challenge of China?
2: Well, if you go back to the Global Trends uh, 2020 produced in 2005, you'll see there that we talked about a China that wouldn't necessarily be democratic in 2020, um, the way a lot of people thought, and that would want to be um, its own rule maker in the world. I don't, I think there was a you know, we were out in front of even Chinese experts on this. Um, I, I think there was a slower appreciation, and I and I it it it's mysterious to me why we would assume that a country, an ancient civilization that predates ours by millennium, has 1.3 billion people in it would want to just resign itself to a passive role in a US-led global order.
0: So we were wrong.
2: We were wrong, but I think it goes back to this issue right after the Cold War, where we got this idea that history had stopped, that it was all over, everybody accepted the US way of thinking, wanted to be like Americans, And it was game over. And we could not imagine in our own minds about how others (laughs) did not want this future that we we laid out for
0: So let me ask you for your forecast again. Do you see a, a unipolar world, a bipolar world, a multipolar world
2: I think the unipolar world was a very brief, um, but unfortunately failed experiment by the US in the 90s and the early 2000s, particularly I think with Iraq and, and we've seen with Afghanistan. So I, I don't think that was, you know, everybody talked about a, a thousand year rule or something like the Roman empire. It wasn't going to happen. I, I think it's really a multipolar, obviously with some poles being bigger than others. So US, China, obviously big, also uh, Europe up there, but they're different. What is important for the US to understand is that it's a multipolar world. There's no going back to a unipolar world. And we we actually have to think about working with others and forming coalitions. And if we want to push our ideas, then we have to get others on our side and really debate this, also be willing to compromise at points. And that I think is a, it's a very hard thing for the political elite to get their uh, head around. And it's understandable in a way because this has all happened so quickly. I mean I can remember I started out as an analyst just about the time that the Berlin Wall crashed. And at that point, you know, nobody could imagine where you know the world we are in now. It seemed inconceivable and we got used to this idea that US you know, the exceptional US had the right and duty to really run the world and that I don't, you know, I think that was a mirage even at that time, but it's something that it's very hard to get out of your head once it's in it.
0: Where is Russia in this coming multipolar world?
2: Increasingly on China's side, we know that they both feel this sense that the U S believes that it is, um, should have the right to to judge everybody uh, and condemn, you know, those that don't follow U.S. dictate, uh, and that is that's the real glue that that pulls them together.
0: In the U.S., we have uh, deep political divisions. Again, put on your prognosticating hat. How is that going to play out in your opinion?
2: Unfortunately, it means people will not wrestle with the big issues and you can't come to some sort of agreement that will be sustained past that administration.
0: So does that mean that our government in the US cannot cope with any of these big issues facing us that are laid out in these intelligence reports?
2: Not uh, not at presently in a sustainable way.
0: So what does that mean for the world if the US cannot find a course and keep to it to address some of these looming crises?
2: Well, it means a diminution of US power because power is based upon can you help others solve problems? We solved Europe's problems during the Cold War when it faced Soviet aggression. So that, that was the basis of, of US power. It, the US cannot be there You know, if the U.S. is there for four years on climate change in the next four, we're not there. That's not going to help the rest of the world.
0: In fact, it's going to have the opposite effect. Yes. The most dismal scenarios laid out are more apt to come true. Yes. Um, You have written that government should not be an exercise in crisis management. Is that what it is now? Yes. So, it brings me back to this. Why prepare these reports if the federal government in the U.S. is totally incapable of acting on them?
2: Well, you know, the men and women of the intelligence community are very public-minded. So, we've lived through generations of leaders who don't pay attention and i think you nevertheless hope and you do have leaders i mean we've had you know we've had leaders who pay attention
0: but in this moment
2: but it it, it isn't institutionalized that that is a real problem is that you don't have you know somebody sitting at the the table when the big decisions are being made and said, well what what about that problem? What about the fact that there's going to be an insurgency after you invade Iraq? Have you thought about that? That's what you really need. And in a sense you you need somebody there who who can present a different you know the different the, the risks, of whatever is being decided, and also bring up the, th- the issues that aren't being talked about, that should be.
0: So it's all about short-term gain rather than addressing the long-term pain.
2: Yes, and you can be working your, your, your tail off on the day-to-day. I mean, the, you know we're not talking about people not working. In fact, the problem is they're working too much on day-to-day that they cannot see, you know, they can't see the forest for the trees.
1: Wow. Well, Gene, it's kind of startling to hear such a bold admission of failures in long-time national security strategy and planning.
0: Uh, particularly when it comes to the pandemic, it seems to me, this is something foreseen by the intelligence community, as he says, but also by the public health community. There were people who had done a lot of deep thinking about pandemic preparedness, and yet the world wasn't ready.
1: And another pandemic is coming, the experts say. So we better be better prepared next time.
0: Hopefully we've learned our lesson. I'm Jean Meserve. Thanks so much for joining us this week.
1: I'm Jeff Stein. Hope you'll tune in again next week for the Spy Talk podcast.
0: For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.